Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the us being able to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you that by raising him from the dead, you've put your good housekeeping seal of approval on the sufficiency of his death and his payment, his atonement for us, for his enduring your wrath on our behalf. Such an appropriate subject for today as we consider your wrath and our relationship to your wrath in the future. These are, uh, there are a lot of um, uh, controversies. There's a lot of different views of what we're going to talk about today, and I pray that you would give us wisdom to be able to rightly divide your word, that we may know you rightly, that we may worship you rightly. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so last week we, we looked at the topic of the tribulation. And just as a, as a recap, uh, what is the tribulation? The time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, you can also call that the 70th week of Daniel. Going back to Daniel chapter 9. Um, what else do we know about the tribulation? Okay, so it's primarily about the Jews and Sheree. It's a time of unprecedented suffering. Unprecedented suffering. And so, uh, and how long does it last? Seven, Seven years. Generally speaking, uh, how does that seven years play out? So you've got two halves. You have the first half, which is still called the tribulation. And then you have the second half, which gets uh, another adjective thrown in there. That's the great tribulation. That is when the unmixed, undiluted wrath of God is poured out on unbelieving nations. And so, again, the focus, there, there's two focuses for the time of the tribulation. One is God, literally, God breaking Israel. Uh, when it talks about making an end of transgression, the idea is that God is going to, shatter them until they come to the point where they realize that Jesus in fact is the Messiah and that previous you know that previous generation turned away from their Messiah and as a nation they're going to turn to Christ and they're going to be redeemed now the time of the tribulation is going to be a very difficult Time, if you are a Jew. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will die during the tribulation period. And so it is not going to be something that is easy for them. And yet, in, in bringing about that 
persecution for them. It's what's necessary to bring them to the point of repentance. Remember that God doesn't jump immediately to the nuclear option. And God hasn't done that with the Jewish people either. And so here we've had centuries of, of them running in to the same brick walls. And the time is going to come when they are going to realize who Jesus is and they are going to turn to him. And so during the time of the tribulation, where is history, so to speak, centering? Jerusalem. And so we're going to see that um, as, we, as we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see that uh, it centers in Jerusalem and much of it centers on the temple. And so, and specifically centering on the Jewish people. Now, we needed to go through and talk about the tribulation last week and honestly, we probably should have gone through and done the millennial kingdom before we talk about the rapture. But I said last week we were going to do the rapture, so we're going to do the rapture. Uh, just understand that there's a couple of questions that we're probably going to have to get into next week when we talk about. And, and we'll get into that at the very end today. So what is the rapture? Where does the word come from? Is it in the Bible? Is the word rapture in the Bible? No, it's not. Not in our English Bible. If we were reading the Vulgate, the Latin transition, translation of the Bible, we would encounter the term. Because the word means to snatch, to, to carry away, and it is the it comes from the Latin word rapio or raptura, and which is the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo. Now harpazo is a biblical term. And specifically, the one place that we're going to run into it relative to the rapture is in First Thess um, 4:17, when it talks about being caught up. That is the word harpazo. And, the, and again, it means to snatch or to carry away by force. And so it's, it's, a, it's a forcible removal. And so it's used to talk about God's sudden removal of the church from this planet, from earth to heaven. There are six raptures that are recorded in the Bible. So you have, now, so stop and think for a moment. Where might you run into, and I'll, I'll, let's, let's go back to the Old Testament. Where might you run into the concept of the rapture in the Old Testament? Elijah is one. Enoch is another. Because those men did not experience death, Right? God's walking with Enoch, and one day, you know what? Hey, we're closer to my place than yours. Why don't you just come with me? And so Enoch doesn't experience death. And Elijah, boy, he goes out in a blaze of glory, pun intended, 
right? Because he's literally taking up in a, in a chariot of fire up into heaven. Where else might you find the idea of rapture? Would it surprise you to find that Jesus was raptured? When Jesus ascended, it is that idea. He is being taken up into heaven. The two witnesses that we're going to encounter in the book of Revelation, after they are killed, after their ministry runs its course, and they are murdered and left, their bodies left in the streets for three days, a voice from heaven is going to call out, come up here, and they're going to rise and go up in everybody's sight. Now, and it, it, it's actually specific to the whole world is going to see that. Now, for the first century, you can understand that, you know, those people would go, well, how could the whole world see this? I don't think we have any problem understanding that concept that the whole world is going to be able to see that, given that, you know, we have the internet and we have all kinds of ability to see things, frankly, in real time. And so there are a number of occasions where this idea is used. And so, but, let's face it, when you talk about rapture, what automatically comes to mind? If you were to, okay, if you guys were talking about this at lunch today and say, you know, what do you think about the timing of the rapture? Which one are you referring to? You're referring to the one that, 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 that involves the church. And so, in fact, it's the only one in, in the Bible that, that is about a group. All the others are, are individuals or, you know, the two witnesses, it's two people. There are three primary passages that are going to be used to talk about the rapture. Those are going to be John 14, verses 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, specifically verses 51 and 52. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17. Actually, you could probably include verse 18 there too. And so those, in fact, let's go ahead and let's just read those. Let's flip to John chapter 14. Now, what is the setting of John chapter 14? Very appropriate for this weekend. Yeah, that's the night. That's the night of the Last Supper. And so, in fact, he's just told Peter that Peter was going to deny him. In fact, let's go back into chapter 13. <clears throat> um, Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And then immediately he moves into this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, You know what, I I did not even put this in your notes. Jesus is referring to a very common practice that was happening in his day so these men would be fully familiar with this subject. And that is the analogy of a Jewish wedding. When a Jewish couple came to the point that they did things differently than we do. So when a Jewish man and a Jewish woman came to the point where they were going to, they wanted to get married, they would become betrothed. And at that time, the Jewish man would go to the woman's father to ascertain just what he's got to pay to get her because there was going to be a price. Kind of like some of these, ha- these customs, but oh well. So, the man would go to his future father-in-law to ascertain the, the dowry for his prospective bride. And when that agreement is reached, then he would go home he would go back to his father's. The groom is going back to his father's house. And he would begin to build a dwelling place at his father's house for them to inhabit. And he would be gone for upwards of a year. During that time, he's making arrangements, he's, he's gathering what he's got to pay in order to obtain his bride, and he's making these preparations for her when he goes to get her. And the, uh, that day would come, she would not know the exact day that he was coming to get her. It was usually done at night, And the groom would show up and he would have a wedding party. He's got people ready. He's got his groomsmen ready. And he would go and he would get her and they would have the wedding there at her house. And there would be attendants. There would be his attendants. There would be her attendants. And so they are part of this. And at the end of the ceremony, there would be a bridal chamber and they would go, the the husband and his new wife would go to the bridal chamber and that is where they would consummate the marriage. While the wedding party's outside. 
so that when everything is done, the wedding party can announce that it's happened. It's done. I'm not making this up. I'm not so sure I like that part of it. And check this out. They would stay. There would be a feast. But they stay in the bridal chamber for seven days. And at the end of that seven days, they come out and there is a party. And then he takes her home to his dad's place where he's built the, the dwelling place for them to live. And that's home. That's the analogy that he's drawing from when he talks about this. And so when Jesus talks, you know, I, I don't know about you. I grew up with the King James Version. And in the King James, it's in my father's house are many mansions, right? The word literally is dwelling place. And the concept of that is he's tying that directly to the idea of the Jewish wedding. And so now all of a sudden, in their minds, and can you see now how the early church would be looking at this? Okay, wait a minute. He's paid the price. He's paid the price for us. He's gone back to his dad's place. What did he say when he left? I can't do a Schwarzenegger impression, but I'll be back, right? He's coming back. Do we know exactly when? No, we don't. But we know that when he does come, he is going to take us. There is going to be a party and we're never again going to be separated from him. And where is our dwelling place going to be? With him in his father's house. So can you see now? So when you, when you consider the, the early church, how would they be looking at this event? What warning would they have, by the way? Now, this is another one. What warning did the bride have that the groom was showing up? Well, she didn't have any advance notice, but she would be waiting to hear something. I forgot to tell you this part. Oh, yeah. The shout. You don't want to show up at, you know, father-in-law's house unannounced in the middle of the night. So there's a big shout that warns everybody, he's coming. So can you see that for the early church, as they're looking at this, they're wondering, is it going to be today? Could it be tonight? 
And how would that affect their living? How would that affect their lifestyle choices? How would that affect their daily decisions? Exactly. Always, you know, they are the original Boy Scouts, right? Be prepared. He could be coming back today. And because he could be coming back today, then I need to be about his business. I need to be living a holy life because I don't want to be embarrassed when he comes. I don't want to be unprepared. I don't want to be like the virgins who didn't have oil for their lamps. I want to be about his business so that when he comes, it's a happy, it's a joyous occasion. Can you see also why James would talk to early Christians and write to them and say, when you are friends with the world rather than servants of your betrothed, that you are adulteresses. In the Jewish culture, once you were betrothed, you were married. You just hadn't consummated it yet. But it was treated as though you were married already. That's why Joseph, when Mary, as a virgin, became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Joseph, being a righteous man, sought to put her away privately. He didn't want to embarrass her, but she's pregnant. And can you imagine a daughter coming home and saying, I'm pregnant and God did it. And so, so what did Jesus do? What did God do for, for Joseph? Okay, Joseph, we got some special circumstances here. And so you have the angel appearing to Joseph so that Joseph gets it from God, right? And so again, that's the, that's the setting here. That's the context for this idea of Jesus's return. So when, again, when you look here in John 14, you have, I'm baking many dwelling places. We've each got one. We each have our own place in heaven. I'm preparing that place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And actually, this is translated in the future tense, right? I will come. It's present tense in Greek. It doesn't sound well. But it's the idea of, I'm doing it now. That's how certain it is. I'm doing it now. That's already on the books for, when, for this occur occurring. And so it's something that is utterly certain. I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive it to myself so that where I am, there you are. The idea is we're never again to be separated from him, ever. 
All right, let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And again, what's a mystery? Biblically speaking, what's a mystery? Something that has been hidden in the past, but is now being revealed. Okay? It's been hidden in the past. Now it's being revealed. So Paul is saying, Behold, pay attention, listen up. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So at the rapture, when this event occurs, you have the dead in Christ. We're going to get that in 1 Thess 4. The dead in Christ are going to be raised. And those of us, you know what? Hang on. Let's just go there first. Otherwise, be repeating myself. So let's flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I went to a church once where anytime somebody died, this passage would be read. First S4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be ignorant, uninformed, brethren. See, I'm slipping back into King James already. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Thessalonians were in a period of time, and in 2 Thess Thessalonians was written to correct some of their eschatological questions. They had been told a lie. They were believing that lie, and it was upsetting them greatly. And so Paul wrote to them again and built on this passage in 2 Thess. So the idea here is that when the rapture occurs, Jesus is going to come in the, in the sky. Those who are dead, have already, that have, you know, whose spirits have already gone to be with him in heaven, they're coming with them. Their bodies are leaving from here and heading up. So you've got the, the bodies being resurrected to go to meet him in the air. And those of us who are alive 
and still kicking, we're going to go too. And at that point, a couple of things happen. Number one, the dead folks, they get their new bodies. I am going to be really grateful to get my new model. This old one is starting to show the effects of wear. Those who are alive and remain, same thing happens. We get our new bodies. That's when we get them. And they are forever bodies. Nobody. There are a couple of sayings that are going to go away. One of them, the old gray mare just ain't what she used to be. We're not going to be talking about that anymore. Juliet. Actual bodies are coming up. If it's dust, the dust is coming up. Now, however, they are going to get a new body at that moment. Okay? So they are going to have their forever body. Mm -hmm. Well, people recognized Lazarus. They didn't recognize Jesus. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him until what happened? Until they saw his hands. <laughs> Kind of hard to hide those. So the idea, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to look like. I don't know what you're going to look like. And honestly, can it be truthful? I don't care. Andrew. I don't know. Don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. You're saying that they, once their eyes were open on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him as Jesus they had known before his crucifixion. Right? Because the people recognized 500 witnesses. If you look completely different, they would say, well, I don't know who this guy is, but it's not. Well, let me put it this way. Jesus walked through a wall. Now, I've tried that a couple of times. That didn't go well. So, in appearance, maybe we'll look the same. In function, well, we're going to be able to do some stuff that I don't think we're accustomed to being able to do. Oh, I think that's probably more relative to our sin, you know, that our sin nature is forever gone, being able to be, to be able to see him face to face. Um, I mean, 
before the fall, he, you know, he walked with Adam. And so, um, what are the dimensions of the New Jerusalem? 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles this way, and, oh, 1,500 miles on the Z-axis, up. You realize that if you put a person every half a mile, your nearest neighbor is a half mile away. There's room for 27 billion, that's with a B, people. And your nearest neighbor is half a mile away. And so I, w I would sense that transportation is probably going to be a little different when we get there. I don't want to. So the idea here is when you have the resurrection, we get that's, you have your new bodies, and we are caught up and we're with Jesus forever. Where he goes, we go. Now, there are four primary views of the rapture. You have a rapture that occurs before, well, all right, so there is a before the tribulation rapture. That's gonna be called pre-tribulation rapture. That's one. There's a second view that says that the, the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation period. So that's going to be called mid-tribulation. You have the third, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, which says that the rapture occurs after the tribulation period. So that's called post-tribulation. And then in the last 30 years or so, there has been a derivative of the mid-trib view, and that is called the pre-wrath rapture. And what that rapture says, that rapture divides up the tribulation a little differently than the other three views. So in the pre-wrath rapture, you have the first half of the tribulation. That stays pretty much the same. That's going to be the beginning of birth pangs. And so you have um, trouble coming. You've got some, the, the seals are being, to, are being opened, and you've got um, bad things beginning to happen. They look at that, and they say that that is not the wrath of God, that the the seal judgments are basically unveiling the wrath of man, which becomes pertinent later. So you have the first half is about the same. And then in the middle of the tribulation to not the end, basically up until when you start getting the bold judgments, that constitutes the great tribulation. And they go to Matthew for that, where Matthew says that, you know, if those days were not shortened, no flesh would live. And so their idea is, is that that is being shortened from the three and a half. And then from the end of the Great Tribulation until the end of the seven years, that actually constitutes the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's when the bold judgments are coming out and all of this... Um, you know, the real horrific wrath of God that is coming is poured out. So the pre-wrath rapture says that when it comes between the sixth and the seventh seals, that's when people are raptured. But 
That's also when the second coming occurs. So they take the features of the post-tribulational rapture, where basically the rapture is happening. We, we all go up and we immediately come back down. That's the post-trib rapture. We go meet the Lord in the air and then we, we do a U-turn and we're coming back with them to here. They, they incorporate that facet, but they incorporate this other where it is not, uh, where, where God's people are not going through the, the most horrific of the judgments because that is the wrath of God. And we're not, we are not to experience the wrath of God. That's why they draw a distinction between the later judgments and the early judgments. These early judgments are the wrath of man. These later judgments are the wrath of God. So that's the, um, that's the pre-wrath. So of those, the pre-tribulational rapture is the only one that stresses imminence. Now we've talked about this before, but we probably need to, to go back over it again. Let, let, actually, let's run through here real quick. Pre-trib, stresses imminence. Nothing else has to take place before the rapture can occur. Does that make sense? The rapture can occur at any time. There's no trigger event that must occur before the rapture can occur. That makes it imminent. It's like the axe is hanging, and it can fall at any moment. Nothing else has to happen first. And so in the pre-trib rapture, the church is caught up before there's any of the judgments, before any wrath is actually dispensed. All the events of the tribulation would occur after the rapture. And then the tribulation period is two halves. Mid-trib, they would hold that the church is on earth during the first half of the tribulation, but is caught up prior to the great tribulation. And the mid-tribbers will also differentiate between the wrath in the great tribulation and those events that are happening in the first half. The first half, that's wrath of man. Last half, that's wrath of God. The pro and now, here's the thing with mid-trib. It's not imminent. Why is it not imminent? Yeah, you've got three and a half years of trouble to go through before you can get there. And that three and a half years must occur. So it's like... Um, it's, 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 it's like the World Series. Is the World Series imminent? No. It's April. They've got this thing called the regular season that's got to be played to figure out who can even go to the World Series, right? So the World Series is not imminent. There's a trigger for the, for the tribulation, right? Yes. 
explore that, say, well, it's, it's happening now with the Book of Amos. So it's kind of an image, but when you look at it, you know, with Antichrist taking on his position, it kicks off the whole program. That's right. The Antichrist is going to sign a covenant. That is the trigger point for the beginning of the tribulation. And so when that occurs, timeline starts. So the church is going to endure some suffering, but not the most intense. And again, you've got two halves. Pre-wrath, I think we covered most of this. Okay, one of the th other things about pre-wrath is they make some distinctions about some terms. Uh, they argue that the term wrath does not occur prior to the bowl judgments and that the seal judgments are the wrath of man. That's yes and no. Because we'll see that when we get to the sixth seal that uh, unbelievers are running to the mountains and pleading for rocks to fall on them to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They know who's behind it and they know what it is. And so... And also, they say that the term tribulation does not occur during the first half of the 70th week. And we went through it. It consists of three parts. And the church gets out before the, basically, um, prior to the seventh seal judgment. The reason that they do that before the seventh seal judgment is the seventh seal judgment immediately opens up the trumpets. That'll make more sense when we go through. I know a lot of you are familiar with that to begin with. The post-trib view is the most commonly held view. Now that may surprise you being from here, but there are a number of denominations where that is uh, the view that is held. Um, in fact, much of re the Reformed community will fall here with post-trip. In fact, in there, the rapture and the second coming are a single eschatological event. They are so closely linked and they are so closely related in time that it's seen as one event. Now, there's a couple, I've got a, a, a quote here. Let's talk about imminence and, and the importance of imminence. This quote's from Reynolds Showers, who is uh, with um, Friends of Israel. An imminent event is one that is always hanging overhead, is constantly ready to befall or overtake a person, is always close at hand in the sense that it could happen at any moment. Other things may happen before the imminent event, but nothing else must take place before it happens. If something else must take place before an event can happen, that event is not imminent. The necessity of something else taking place first destroys the concept of imminency. Now think about that for a moment. If if something is imminent, 
What am I watching for? Am I watching for the event or am I watching for a trigger? I'm watching for the event because there is no trigger. I'm watching for the event. Otherwise, what would I look for? If, I, if there is something that where something else must take place first, but I want to get to the one that's later, what am I watching for? Well, I'm looking for signs now. Do you ever notice that Jesus doesn't tell us when it's relative to the, in fact, nor do the apostles? What is it that we're to be looking for? His appearing. We're looking for the blessed hope. So there's a number of, of it. So again, the idea of looking of, of that imminence stresses watchfulness. Here's the other thing. If, in fact, Jesus uses this example himself. Owner of the vineyard goes away. How watchful do I need to be if I know he's going to be gone for a long time? And there's warning signs of his return. How watchful do I need to be? Yeah. Otherwise, I can be on what? Cruise control. I don't need to be busy. I don't really need to be paying that much attention to my conduct. Because I've got warning. And so again, the idea of, of imminence is, is stimulates watchfulness, alertness. And really, it's the reason for maintaining a holy life. So, James 5, 7 to 9. Let's go through these. Let's, let's look at them. So, James 5. James 5, 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So, what's, what's James saying here? Is this something that he's thinking is going to be taking place sometime after his lifetime? No. He's here. He's here. It's imminent. Therefore, we need to be minding our P's and Q's. Therefore, we need to be patient. And again, that idea of patience is what? It's hupomeno. So it's the idea of, it's the backpacking term, right? So what, what's the idea of patience there? Endurance, my shoulder is under the load and I am moving. Okay? First Thess 110. 
We'll start in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This idea of waiting is it's a present infinitive, and so it is a constant, it's a continual expectant watching. I'm expecting this to happen. And be, therefore, because I'm expecting it to happen, my life is being all judged. My life is being conducted accordingly, right? And in fact, this idea about we're being rescued from the wrath to come. Now, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus today. His death was a couple days ago. What is one of the things that Jesus endured for you and for me? He endured the wrath of God that was due to us. That debt has been satisfied. And we need to let that one sink in for a second. I am never going to be judged for my sin because not only has Jesus atoned for it, he endured the wrath of God that came with it. That's why, again, when we look at the tribulation, what is one of the purposes of the tribulation? It's not just the redemption of Israel. It is that is where the wrath of God is poured out on unbelieving nations. Which frankly is one of the great arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture. Imminence is one and we are not subject to God's wrath. Any of it. Now, does the church get a get out of jail free card because they deserve it? We just got done studying the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. To seven of them. How many of them deserved to be rescued from the wrath to come? Say that louder, please. That's right, none. Don't say two. None of them did. How many of us deserved salvation? None. And so again, the idea that, you know, that somehow this is something that the church has cooked up so that we don't have to go through that particular period of time. No. That wrath has already been satisfied on our behalf. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.7 We've only got eight minutes, so let's, I'm, I'm just going to, 1 Corinthians 8, 7, e awaiting eagerly the, rev the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's awaiting him. It's not awaiting some trigger event. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, we eagerly wait for a savior. And that eagerly wait, that's an intense focus on the Lord's return, his arrival. First Thess 
we who are alive and remain. So how does Paul view the imminence of Jesus' return? Pardon me? His lifetime. It could be his lifetime. That's why he said we, right? Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This idea, again, it's a glad expectancy of anticipation. So again, can you see that this is, uh, I'm not even sure what to use. Um, all right, Carolyn has been uh, going back to visit family out of state. And she'll be gone for a period of time. What do you think my... Um, sense is when I go down to Sac Metro Airport, I know it's Sac International, I can't call it that, good old Sac Metro, to pick her up. Oh, I'm happy, right? I'm happy. She's coming home. I have adult supervision again. <laughs> and so I'm happy to do that. That's the, it's, it's the eager anticipation of the return. And again, not looking for signs. 1 Corinthians 16.22, Maranatha. Maranatha was an Aramaic term. Consists of three parts. And basically it's our Lord come. Ended up being, in fact, it's believed that uh, because it was Aramaic, there were a lot of people who didn't speak Aramaic. And so it was a way that Christians could identify themselves to each other without, you know, hi, are you a Christian? Just saying the word. But again, our Lord, come. Now, there are three events that need to take place between the rapture and the second coming. One is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not the great white throne of judgment because who is the great white throne of judgment for? I realize we haven't gotten to chapter 19, but I know some of you know the answer to this already. Who's the great white throne of judgment for? For the unredeemed. We do not stand before the great white throne of judgment. We do stand before a throne that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what happens at that time? Yeah. We get rewarded if, in fact, we get in, there's an evaluation done of our works as believers. And those that are gold, silver, and precious stones, those remain. Those that are wood, hay, and stubble, they get burned up, Right? It's, we're not in danger of losing our salvation, but there is a holy evaluation of not just what we did, but the attitude and the motive with which we did them, right? So they're going to be judged perfectly and rightly. That occurs, that has to be before the second coming. So it's got to fit in somewhere between the rapture and the second coming. The second event is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is in Revelation 19, and that is prior to the second coming. So it's got to take place somewhere 
Because when, when we come back with Jesus, how are we dressed? Linen, white, and clean, right? Marriage supper had to take place in there somewhere. And so there's got to be time for that to, to occur. And third, and here's the other one that's, you got to figure out how this is going to play, is you got to have some people get saved so that they can populate the millennial kingdom. Because there's a feature with our new bodies. What's one of the features of our new bodies? Well, they're glorified. Are we married in heaven? No. So if we're not married in heaven, and there's children born in the, in the millennial kingdom, where are they coming from? There's got to be people who don't have glorified bodies. And the problem is, if you hold to a post-trib rapture, everybody who's redeemed just went up to meet Jesus in the air and then come back down. Who's going to have kids? Because it ain't going to be us. I know. It's... Never mind, I'm not going to say it. <clears throat> and so again, you've got these events that have got to occur between the rapture and the second coming. Now, you can do that with the pre-trib rapture. Frankly, you would have enough time to do that with the mid-trib or the pre-wrath. But post-trib, you've got an issue. You, you've got a problem. So here's how the post-tribbers, most of the post-trib people, the way that they get around that is that there is no literal millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is now. We're in the millennial kingdom. That's how they, that's how they get around that. All right, lastly and quickly, because we're going to deal with this more at length next week. You know, two quotes. <clears throat> Is there a distinction between the church and Israel? This is an important issue. We need to get our heads wrapped around this one, okay? So, John Walvoord has written, if the term church includes saints of all ages, then it is self-evident that the church will go through the tribulation as all agree that there will be saints in this time of trouble. If, however, the term church applies only to a certain body of saints, namely the saints of this present dispensation, then the possibility of the translation of the church before the tribulation is possible and even probable. What's he saying? If the church includes all believers of all time, then it includes the Old Testament saints and it includes those who are going to be redeemed during the tribulation period. 
Okay? If the church consists of all saints from all time, then the church goes all the way back prior to Abraham and extends all the way up until the second coming. If the church was in fact born on the day of Pentecost and has a time that is completed when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, then there is a separate, and this does not mean that there's a separate way of salvation. It just means that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. Okay? If these two are commingled entirely from beginning to end, then there can be no distinction. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm getting some real quizzical looks. If the church is all, re- all believers of all time, there is no distinction between the church and Israel. Andrew, make it quick. That's correct. They're not in the church. They're redeemed, but they're not in the church. Old Testament believers. Let me do the other one. Walverd is a pre-trib guy. Okay? Now, this other quote is from Douglas Moo. If a radical disjunction between Israel and the church is assumed, a certain presumption against the post-tribulational position exists since it would be inconsistent for the church to be involved in a period of time that, according to the Old Testament, has to do with Israel. Moo is someone who, um, he is a post-tribber. And so again, if there is a distinction between the church and Israel, then that impacts how we view eschatology, specifically the tribulation and specifically the church's presence in the tribulation period. If in fact the church has superseded Israel, meaning that the church has inherited the promises that God made to national Israel, then you would read the book of of Revelation very differently. So this is an issue that we need to to come to grips with. We're not going to do it today. But we will start taking that on next week. All right, let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, Thank you that in fact you have promised that you're coming again and how we look to that day. And we would, we would ask, you know, come quickly. It sure seems like your, your, your return is near. Seems like it could be, you know, it could be any day. It could be today, which would be pretty cool. 
celebrating your resurrection and then being able to see you face to face. I think we could all look forward to that with great anticipation. Father, help us to, to divide your word rightly, that we can understand it rightly. And Father, help us to be um, forbearing. There are good Christian people who land in different places on these subjects. And it's a family discussion. There's no reason to be looking down on anybody because of one view or another. So help us to be humble. Help us to be uh, patient. But Lord, help us too also to be diligent that we would rightly divide your word of truth. In Christ's name, amen.